live. That's the best way to join us. And there's a live prayer app. There's chat. There's a Bible app. You can take notes and do all that stuff. It's just way easier to get connected online if you go to that website. Okay, so let's pray. And then we're going to look at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. First, let's pray. God, thank you that you're with us and you're for us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have called us beloved. And I pray that we would just all know that deep down inside and that that would transform every aspect of our life. Um, that we would be transformed by you, Jesus, by the story that you have told, you have acted out, and you have invited us into. Um, that we would be people transformed by the story of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start with John chapter 15, and John chapter 15 is in this portion of the uh, Gospel of John called the Farewell Discourse, and the Farewell Discourse is John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, and what happens is the Farewell Discourse is Jesus teaching it to his disciples, and it's like the words before his death. <laughs> have you ever had someone who's passing away, a loved one, and you have those last words with them? That's sort of what the Farewell Discourse is, chapter 13 through 17. And prior to that, he'd been going around doing wild miracles like raising someone from the dead, turning water into wine, and then also preaching a message of, a radical message of repentance and of love, of inviting outsiders into the kingdom of God, and it ruffled a lot of feathers, and people were upset. So he knows that the time is coming, that he's going to get betrayed and killed. So he does a farewell discourse, and it starts off with him washing his disciples' feet, John chapter 13 which, just thinking about that, God, the Son of God, made flesh washing the dirty disciples' feet. Wow. And then he has teachings after that, and then after, at the end of John chapter 14, he says, all right, let's get up and depart from here. And they're going towards the garden, and John chapter 15 occurs somewhere between the upper room where they had the Last Supper, he washed their feet, and then the Garden of Gethsemane. And I like to think, because this passage in John chapter 15 is about the vineyard, I like to think that Jesus saw a vineyard near them, and use that as an illustration for this teaching. But we don't really know that. That's not for sure. Okay, so John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. So as you've probably heard me say many, many times whenever we preach on something in the New Testament, the Jesus and the disciples and the early Christians, they were steeped in the story of the Old Testament. I know I mention that every single time, but it's really important to understand that. There's so much imagery there's a, that, that Jesus is referencing from the Old Testament. There's so much going on that the story of the Old Testament they're living in that informs what Jesus is saying here. So a quick uh, recap of the Old Testament that is relevant to what Jesus is saying. In the beginning, John, Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, in the beginning God created. God created the heavens, the earth, God created the sun, the moon, the star, stars, the animals, the fish, all that. God created it all. And at the pinnacle of creation, his greatest creation of all was humankind. And it says he created male and female in the image of God. So men and women created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God meant that we were his representatives here on earth. That we were created to continue the act of creation on earth. To represent God and rule on his behalf. Although, whenever we see that word rule there, remember how did Jesus rule? (laughs) Right? Jesus is the ultimate image bearer, the ultimate human who shows us what does it mean to be made in the image of God. And he ruled not by taking control and forcing people to submit to him, but he ruled by self-sacrificial love on behalf of others. So we are called to be image bearers. But as you know, or you might know, a couple chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, humans were like, you know what? We want to decide what's good and what's evil for ourselves and not trust God. And that went poorly, to say the least. Right away in Genesis chapter 4, the next chapter, you see the consequences of that. You see brother killing brother for not very good reasons. Well, if there's ever a good reason for that, but just brother killing brother, sad. And then also you see a guy named Lamech who's killing people for almost no reason and marrying multiple women. It's just things are going downhill quickly. But thankfully, in Genesis chapter 3, after humankind decided to say what they think is good and what is bad as opposed to trusting God, God promised that there will be a day in which there will be this snake crusher, sort of what is referred to. This person will come and defeat sin and evil and death. And that promise is sort of carried throughout the Old Testament. And we get to the story of Abraham. And God's like, hey, Abraham, go out. Go into this this foreign land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. You will bless the entire world. The question is, how is Abraham going to bless the entire world? Like, am I blessed due to Abraham? Like, what, what's going on there? But anyways, Abraham has a son, and then his son has many children, and then those children have many children, and they have many children. And the next thing you know, Israel is this massive nation, and they're in slavery in Egypt. So they're enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out to God, and God hears their cries, and he rescues them. He beats up the Egyptian gods and redeems his people and brings them out. And he says, when he brings them out, this is Exodus chapter 19, he says, you are going to be a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. So he rescued them for a purpose, right? He rescued them because of his love for him, and he has a purpose for them after his rescuing. And that purpose was to be a kingdom of priests. And what does it mean to be a priest? A priest is somebody who represents God, to others and represents others to God. So they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, people that represented God to the world around them. And not only that, they're supposed to be a light to the nation. So when there was all this darkness around them, they were supposed to be a light, a place of goodness, a source of beauty, of love. They were to be a light. But if you have read the Old Testament, you can see pretty quickly that doesn't go super well. Uh, the Israelites continually turn away from God and chase after foreign other gods. And um, you have to understand that 
following these other gods back then, it wasn't just like a, oh yeah, I, you know, I worship Baal, but it doesn't really affect much of my life. It meant often like engaging in child sacrifice. It, it meant often engaging in cultic temple prostitution. There's many ramifications towards following the gods of the Canaanites or whoever was around them. And so the Israelites started treating people poorly. God kept on pointing out how there was so much injustice and unrighteousness. They were mistreating the widow and the orphan, and it bothered God. They were supposed to be kingdom of priests. They're supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be the people that blesses the whole world like God promised Abraham because they're the descendants of Abraham. And it's not going as planned. And then there's this imagery God uses often in the Old Testament when he's referring to Israel and how they're not following him. He talks about them being a vineyard. A vineyard. He says that they're this vineyard. He's planted this vineyard. They're supposed to produce good fruit, but instead they're producing bad fruit or no fruit at all. And every time God talks about Israel as a vineyard, it's always in a negative context. And so Jesus is tapping into that, that imagery of Israel supposed to be, they're supposed to be this vineyard producing good fruit for the whole world. And really the story of Israel is not unique to Israel, right? The story of Israel is the story of humanity in general. And one thing I was thinking about as I was just contemplating the idea of this, this imagery of a vineyard, it's interesting God chose a vineyard as the, as the metaphor. He didn't choose like a cornfield you know, or wheat. I mean, yes, that's needed for life and for sustenance, but a vineyard is more, you don't necessarily need wine and grapes to live, right? Back then you definitely needed your bread to live. You don't really need wine and grapes to live. So why is it that the vineyard is what he talks about? I think it's because a vineyard is symbolically representing not just surviving, but thriving. A life well-lived, a life full of celebration, a life full of joy. And that's what we are called to. And so God continually is getting upset with them, and he, um, eventually he's, they lose their nation, they're exiled, they go to foreign lands, and long story short, they're back in Jerusalem area, and it's the time of Jesus. And at the time of Jesus, there was a new temple, and they call it the second temple. And above the door of the second temple, to enter into the second temple, there was a golden vine, right, right above it, symbolized uh, the nation of Israel. And then they, were all, they also had coins that had been minted like 150 years before Jesus' time from a revolution. They revolted against their oppressors, and they had independence for a short amount of time, and they minted their own coins, right? So they didn't have to depend on the foreign coins. And on the coins, they put the image of the vine. So you can see that this, the image of the vine was really central to the Jewish national identity and to who the story that they're in. And so whenever Jesus shows up and he says, you all are supposed to be this vineyard, but it wasn't going very well, so guess what? I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now, what's interesting is if he's the true vine, he didn't say he's a vine or the vine, he said he's the true vine. If that's the case, then there must be at least one other vine that is false, <laughs> and potentially many false vines, which I think is the case. There are many false vines. And Jesus is saying, whenever you don't plug yourself into me, whenever you don't remain in me, that's the word he used, we'll talk about that in a bit, whenever you don't remain in the true vine, it doesn't lead to life. And I think we can all relate to that, right? How often do we derive our meaning, our sense of worth, our sense of identity, our sense of purpose from things that are not Jesus? Maybe all we think about is like, okay, if I could just get married, then I would be happy. Or if I could just have a kid, then I would be happy. Or if I would just make a, you know, 
10% more at work, then I'd be happy. Or if I could just buy a house, then I'd be happy. And we plug all of our energy, all of our sense of meaning and purpose into accomplishing that one thing. And in the end, it doesn't give us life. And it's not that those are inherently wrong. Obviously, marriage and um, kids and a new job and a promotion and a house, those are all good things. They're just not where we should get our sense of self, our sense of self-worth, our sense of meaning, our sense of purpose from. Because it will, in, in the long run, lead to nothing. <laughs> At least nothing meaningful. Sorry, I used my phone because I didn't have the other iPad here. So I'm using it for notes. Um, it's a little bit smaller text than I used to. Um, okay, so Jesus is saying, remain in the true vine, not in all these false vines. Now, what does it mean to remain in Jesus? I think to remain in Jesus, right away it means believing Jesus is who he says he is. Believing in the story of Jesus, and then after believing in, and trusting in that, at living into that story. Being connected to that story. Like we were saying earlier, getting all of our sense of worth, our sense of meaning and purpose, getting all that from Jesus. Just like we talked about uh, discipleship is the gospel transforming every area of our life. Abiding, or that's another way that word remaining is translated, maybe in your Bible, you might say abiding. Remaining or abiding in Jesus is allowing every aspect of our life to be transformed by the true vine who is Jesus. And then the question is, how does Jesus, uh, how does remaining in Jesus transform us? And then the second question is, what happens when we don't remain in Jesus? So how does remaining in Jesus or abiding or being connected to the true vine, how does that transform us? Well, the first thing I think we can say is that remaining in Jesus, the first thing that happens is we get a new identity, which transforms us. There's this book you might have heard of. It was called Atomic Habits. Uh, it was written a few years ago, sort of popular a few years ago. And it's this guy just talking about how to change, how to like really simple steps for developing new habits in life. And I remember at the very first, the beginning of the book, the first thing he says is the number one thing you need to change is your identity. So a lot of times people think, okay, I want to get to this outcome. Like I want to run a marathon. And then they think, okay, to get there, I need to do, you know, couch to marathon program or whatever. And he says, no, no, don't start with that. Start with the identity that you want to be. Who do you want to be? And that one, with that one, it could be, I want to be a healthy person, whatever. Um, and he says, and then from that, from that identity, you start doing small things that then show you that you are living up to that identity and you start believing that's your identity and then slowly they compound on each other and then you have, you eventually have the outcome that you're going for. Now, I think it's somewhat similar with the story of Jesus. And, oh, and this guy in the story, he, he gives us example, like for example, if you're trying to start, um, stop smoking and you go outside on the deck, you're with friends and someone's like, hey, do you want to smoke a cigarette? And you say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. The problem with that is your identity is still the smoker, and now you're, you're trying to use your behavior to change your identity. It says, no, the better answer is, no, I'm not a smoker. Because now you're saying, that's my identity, and now my behaviors are, act are matching that. And so it's similar with Jesus. Who, what is our new identity? It's interesting, whenever you look at the, the, the epistles in the New Testament that Paul writes specifically, he <laughs> begins every letter with like, greetings to the saints in Philippi or Corinth or Galatia or whatever, and uh, the word saints literally means holy ones. And then, so you're thinking, okay, man, these must be really good people. Then you read the letters and you're like, oh my goodness, these people are a mess, you know? Like, I mean, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's, he's calling out somebody who's sleeping with his stepmom. And, and you're like, Paul's calling these people holy ones? 
Like, what's going on here? I think it's because Paul is calling them to their new identity in Christ that God has spoken, that they are a child of God, that they are saints of God, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, they are now sons and daughters of God. They are beloved. In fact, Jesus calls us friends of God. That is our new identity. And from that, we begin to change. It's not that I have to do all these behaviors and then I get a new identity. First thing that happens is I get a new identity in Christ when I attach myself to the true vine. And the beginning of John chapter 15, Jesus says, uh, this is verse 3. It doesn't have the verses on here, but in the middle there, it says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And that word clean in Greek is katharos. And then earlier on, whenever the word prune says, and God is pruning, the gardener is pruning us, that word prune is kathare, and it's a verb form of clean, a prune. So really Jesus is saying, is that you are already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. And it's like, well, what is the word speaking to us? What does it have to do with me being cleansed? What, how does that work? Well, remember, what happened in Genesis chapter one? God spoke and it came to be. God said, let there be light and there was light. God said, let there be a tree and it wasn't like he's like, all right, let me get some bark over here. Let me get a little bit of wood, maybe form it with some leaves. He said, let there be a tree and there was a tree. And God has spoken. He said, you are beloved. And guess what? You are beloved. God spoke and said, you are a son and daughter of God. Therefore, you are a son and daughter of God. See, God's words have creative, regenerative Um, force behind them. My words have a value behind them, but they don't create. God's word creates, and he has declared you beloved, and therefore you are beloved, and that is your new identity in Christ. The next way I think we are transformed once we have this new identity is that we gaze upon the beauty and the story of Jesus. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that I really like. Let me skip a few things here. Um, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So by gazing at Jesus, by gazing into that story, by being overcome by the story of Jesus, we are slowly transformed. An example I've used in youth group a number of times, and I can't remember if I've used it here before, is when I was a kid, I loved Mulan, you know, the animated Mulan video. Has anyone here seen Mulan? The old one. I haven't actually seen the new one, but the old one. Mulan, it's like a martial arts uh, animated Disney movie from like 20 years ago or something, and I loved it. And I remember my friends and I, would watch it, get really into it, you know, just dead silent, watch it all the way in to the movie. Then afterwards, you know what I wanted to do? Go do flying kicks outside. Right? Of course. Go through like all these awesome kicks, practice all these cool martial art moves. moves. And I sort of think that's what happens whenever we gaze into the story of Jesus. We enter into that story and we allow the story to transform us and then we desire to act out that story in our life. And that slowly transforms us. So contemplating that story, and we contemplate and we meditate upon the story of Jesus through reading the story of Jesus in the Bible. We contemplate it and meditate on it by partaking in communion by being in community together, by prayer, by singing songs. There's so many different ways that we, we enter into that story and it slowly changes us. The third way that we are transformed by abiding, so first is identity transformation, second is we're given this new story that we enter into and begin to live out. The third way is we are pruned. 
And I know that sounds scary. <laughs> it's like, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So we are pruned, Jesus says. There's this uh, book that I really like. Has anyone read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Okay, so I'm going to read a portion of that book. And it's a story where um, these people are living in hell or purgatory. And it's by C.S. Lewis, who's a well-known writer from the last century. And they're in hell or purgatory, and they travel up to like a quasi-heaven spot. And the main character is watching different interactions between angelic beings and these people who came up from hell and purgatory. And, and there's different, it's like all little parables occurring in, in the story. And we're going to read the story of um, a gentleman who is a ghost. That means he came up from hell or purgatory into heaven. And he has something that's holding him back. And he's being asked to prune it away. But first, before I read it, I need to get some water. Okay, this is from The Great Divorce. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish, this one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward, westward away from the mountains. So they're supposed to be traveling towards the mountains. The mountains is where heaven is. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Tyrannous, I don't know how to say that. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good. You see, I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like for me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, ugh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him to get killed? You didn't say anything about that, about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because, well, up here, it's just, it's just so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that, let, that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think it over and over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It'd be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in a good health for that operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did it. It is not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said that it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back to tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come back the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. 
Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me into pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me? Before I knew, it would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent. Have I your permission? said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may? Damn and blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended with whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony, such, I have, such as I have never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed onto the turf. Ow! That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man, then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much taller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that the same moment something happened, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen silvery white, but with the mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscles, winning and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the tr trees dindled. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed e each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I well knew what was happening. There was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off onto the green plain. And soon among the foothills of the mountains, then still, then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment, till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. I love this story, because it's an illustration of God pruning and transforming what is not in line with what it means to be beloved and a son and daughter of God, and transforming it into something beautiful and life-giving. And I think that is what's happening whenever God prunes us. There's this quote by Michelangelo, uh, who, whenever he, someone asked him, how did you do this? I, 
can't remember the text, is it the Statue of David? I don't know if that's the correct term for it, but Statue of David. I was like, how did you do that? And Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. I think Jesus sees the image in you. And he's asking, will you let me prune until you are set free and you can ride off into the sunset, full of life, full of joy, full of beauty and goodness. That's what pruning is. Now, what happens when we don't remain in Jesus? Often we think that the opposite of abiding is just being independent, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, on an interview question, what's, a, what's your greatest weakness? Oh, I just work too hard, I try too hard, I, you know, I just care too much. You know, it's a good answer. We, we think of independence as not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it's not great, but it's not, not that bad. But Jesus is saying the opposite of not remaining in him, the opposite of abiding, is death. The opposite of not abiding is death. You see, he says that we become a useless branch that is thrown into the fire. And that sounds really harsh, but we have to understand, a vine, now I'm no gardener and I know nothing about wood, but from what I've read from other people, vine branches are pretty useless once they're dead. Because you can't do anything with the wood. You know, if you cut down an oak tree, man, you can do some amazing stuff with that wood. But a vine, it's useless once it's dead. And so even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, he talks about, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, he says, there's nothing else you can do with a vineyard once it's dead except for just put it in the fire. That's all you can use it for is for kindling. And that's what Jesus is saying. The opposite of abiding in him is not independence, it is death. It's a, it's a life devoid of meaning. It's a life with no fruit. And sometimes maybe we're like, we haven't been abiding in, in God or in Jesus for a few years. Maybe I last had that a connection with Jesus five years ago. And I've been living off the fumes of that connection, the sap of that connection for the past five years, and the supply is dwindling and dwindling. I've been getting into Survivor the past couple of years. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a reality show. I'm not that into reality shows, but this one was entertaining, and they live on this island for like 39 days. And it astounded me the first time I watched it because you would see people show up, and then you look at their picture at the very end, and they would lose like 40, 50 pounds of weight because they don't have a lot of food out there. And you'd talk to them, or you'd hear their interviews. I've never spoken with them. <laughs> and you'd hear their interviews, and they'd say, yeah, at the beginning, you had all these cravings, hunger pains. Then after like a week or two, you just stopped feeling hungry. I've never done a long fast, but I've heard that same thing. After a while, you just stop being hungry. At first, you have that hunger pains, and your body uses the fat stores, then the muscles, and then you're just emaciated. And in this analogy, I think if we haven't been connected to Jesus in a long time, eventually we just become apathetic. We do not care. Everything is pointless. It's meaningless. We no longer crave. We no longer crave um, the true vine. We don't really crave much at all. We're devoid of passion and meaning. And I think that can happen so easily. But there is good news. <laughs> there is good news. The good news is that we aren't called to do that much. <laughs> we are called to simply allow the vine to transform us. We are called, just like that character in that story, that ghost, we're called to just say, God help me. That's all we need to do, God help me. And then get connected to the vine and slowly we'll be transformed the way we talked about it. But, but in order for that to happen, we have to trust that God, the gardener, is good. And some of us might be like, I don't know about that. Like, if I'm going to let somebody prune me, I have to trust that they are indeed good. 
that they are truly a good person. I had knee surgery a couple years ago, and you know, I like read up on the doctor, like reading reviews about him, because I'm like, I don't want just anybody digging into my knee and maybe causing irreparable harm. So the question is, is God a good God? Can we trust him and allow him to prune us? Well, I think we can, and the simple answer is because Jesus is the true vine. And that doesn't make sense at first, but let me explain. Uh, Jesus is the true vine. Remember that analogy. God planted this vineyard, and the vines were just not producing good fruit. And so what would the natural response? The natural response would be like, all right, let's plant another one. Maybe let's get rid of this one, till the soil, use it again. No, God said, you know what? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know, that's the Trinitarian understanding that Christians have. It's like God the Father's like, hey, God the Son, why don't you go down there and become a vine? It's like, huh, cool. Yeah, I'd give up all my power, all my prestige, all my abilities, and God the Son will become human and, or become a vine in this, uh, this metaphor. And then it's like, and guess what? You're going to become a vine, but the other vines in the area, they're going to be ticked. And they're going to kill you. But you're going to be resurrected. I can't imagine anything better than that. A God who would become human on my behalf, who'd give up all power, all privilege, everything in order to enter into my experience and then die on my behalf. That is a God I believe we can trust. Even whenever it feels like, oh, really, it hurts. I don't want you to get rid of that part of me. That hurts. That's painful. I have to believe that the God who'd become human and die on my behalf knows what he's doing and that I can trust him and that he truly loves me. For he has called me, he has spoken into existence that you are beloved sons and daughters of God. There's this, another quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the very first book. Uh, there's this character called Aslan. If you haven't read Chronicles of Narnia, I highly recommend it. Aslan is this lion who represents Jesus, God, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And at the very, in the very first book, there's a character, main character, named Lucy. And she asks this uh, beaver, <laughs> there's talking animals in Narnia, she asks this beaver, uh, she's about to see Aslan, the lion. She's like, is he a tame lion? And the beaver looks at her and is like, no, my goodness, no, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. He's not a tame lion. God is not a tame God that I can just put in a little box, make him do whatever I want, and I can, make him, and I can just be like, make me feel comfortable only. But he is a good God. That is a God we follow, a good God. So at this point, I'd like to invite the worship team up. I have a couple reflection questions, um, and then we have a final song to sing. And yeah, so the reflection questions. Oh, they got split up here somehow. Okay. Are there any false finds that you have attached yourself to? Are there any false finds that you have attached yourself to to get a sense of meaning and purpose and worth? Do you trust that God is good? Why, or, why not? If you said yes, are you remaining in him? Are you connecting yourself to the true vine? And the last question, is there anything the Holy Spirit is inviting you into? Sorry, I'll just leave this one up. And the other one is, is there anything the Holy Spirit is inviting you into? Let's pray. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the true vine. Thank you that you are the good gardener, the gardener that cares about us, that has called us sons and daughters of the Most High, who's called us beloved, no matter what we might look like on the outside, but you look at us and you see us as image bearers and you desire to help us enter into that life of meaning and fulfillment and joy. 
even though it's hard. And I pray that we would know that you are good. We would know in the deepest parts of our soul that you are love and you are good and we can trust you with our lives. I pray for anyone here who's struggling to actually accept that. I pray that they'd be able to talk with people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just do a miracle in their life so that they can truly believe that you are good and that you are love. Holy Spirit, guide us as we follow you. Transform every area of our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be people who are so transformed that we begin to act like you in the city of Seattle. That we begin to act in a way of self-sacrificial love the way you act in that way for us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for every single person here. In your name we pray. Amen.